Good afternoon, everyone. This is sort of like a movie. That was the prequel. Now we go back, we actually get the title and whatnot. So uh, I'm David Leslie, director of the Rothko Chapel, and it's just my honor and pleasure to uh, welcome you here in person. We also have a large group watching uh, online, including some dear friends at the Tibetan uh, Buddhism Center for World Peace in San Antonio. So it's great to uh, have folks far in uh, all corners of the, of the world watching. Um, I also want to give special thanks to our institutional individual donors who are supporting this year's program season. If you aren't a donor, there's always room for you. We always uh, want to keep building our community. Um, and I also want to give special thanks to uh, my program team colleagues, uh, Kelly Johnson and Ana Martinez, and then all the volunteers and staff that help make all of our programs uh, such a, a transformative opportunities for community gathering. Since its opening in 1971, the chapel has continued to be a very important pilgrimage destination, welcoming visitors from all over the world, seeking solace, respite, and renewal within the walls of this really, really remarkable sanctuary. In addition, Barnett Newman's Broken Obelisk, which all of you all saw and you'll see on your way out on the plaza, dedicated to the living legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., invites all who visit to strengthen their commitments to furthering peace, equity, and social justice. To help us in our collective efforts to be more effective justice and peacemakers, and as we've done for more than 40 years, we gather again today for Dr. King's birthday to delve deeper into the implications of his life and witness and what those mean for contemporary society. This year's program, inspired in part by the Museum of Fine Art Houston's current exhibition, Gordon Parks, Stokely Carmichael and Black Power, focuses on how the media impacts and furthers narratives around social justice movements. While many of us would agree that Dr. King had a very clear understanding of the transformative power of imagery, be it conveyed visually through a photograph, or orally through a sermon or a speech, this part of Dr. King's legacy is not often well known. As a well-known and former professor, historian, and curator, Maurice Berger, who sadly died in 2020, said in an interview with Smithsonian Magazine, one of the most extraordinary and least understood aspects of Dr. Martin Luther King's leadership was his incisive understanding of the power of visual images to alter public opinion. So today, to help us broaden our own understanding of this aspect of the legacy of Dr. King, we are privileged to have an amazing panel of experts who also understand the power of both the pen and the lens. While their full bios are in the print and the online program, I do want to say a word of introduction about each of them. First, Lisa Volpe is the curator of photography at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston, having previously served as curator of the Wichita Art Museum, curatorial roles at Santa Barbara Museum of Art, and fellowships at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, and the Cleveland Museum of Art. Lisa, it's great to have you here and also recognizing our partnership with the MFA Houston. It's great to have you. Sitting next to uh, Lisa is Michal Ross Russo, uh, 
who is currently serving as a programs director at the Garden Parks Foundation. Also, Lisa has served as the David C. and Sarah Jean Rutenberg Associate Curator of Photography at the Art Institute of Chicago. And it's great that you got here, and you got here safely and in one piece and on time. So we're glad to have you here from Chicago. Sitting next to Lisa is Baltimore-based photographer Devin Allen, who is a self-taught photographer and artist who gained national attention when his photograph of the Baltimore Uprising was published on the cover of Time magazine in May of 2015. Only the third time a work of an amateur photographer has been featured. We're glad you made it, glad you're here. Welcome to Houston. And then we're really, really privileged to have with us uh, for our moderator this afternoon, Tony Diaz. Many of you all may know Tony because he is a Houston-based writer, activist, media personality, and a founder of Nuestra Palabra, Latino Writers Having Their Say, Houston's first reading series for Latino authors. As I conclude my remarks, I want you to remind you to do two things, house notes, if you would, please silence and turn off your cell phones, and uh, no pictures. We are recording today's uh, presentation conversation, so it will be posted on our, our website. And also, there'll be time for questions and answers following uh, their, their remarks. And you should have uh, note cards in your program. If you'd like to write a question, do so. Uh, hold it up, and a volunteer will come and pick it up. And if you're watching this, you can also put a question in the live stream chat box, and we'll get to as many as we can. So with that, my part is done. Let us welcome our panelists and turn it over to Tony Diaz. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you very much for that warm introduction, setting up this great event, that nice round of applause. Really a pleasure to convene with you today. And this is gonna be like I thought graduate school would be like, okay? When I thought, I'm like, we're gonna have deep conversations about all these topics, not so much. Today we're gonna go there. Uh, having said that, I do wanna peel away one layer of what we're talking about is the media's role in humanizing or dehumanizing us. And I'm gonna start by this. There would not be a panel like this on any corporate media show, especially because a lot of times we're not treated as experts on ourselves. <laughs> you know? So we, we begin by chipping away at that. I also, I wanna bring up questions that corporate media could not ask. So here's the first one, because this is what ran through my head and might be running through some of your minds when I got invited. Why would a Chicano be moderating a panel on MLK's birthday? <laughs> now, I will have a direct answer for you during the Q&A session if y'all don't provide questions. <laughs> but I have a feeling that the discussion we're gonna engage in, because I've had the privilege of chatting with these folks several times, I think we're gonna provide that answer. And here's the beginning of what I thought about as I came to this. One, I don't wanna pander. So I'm gonna start by stating a fact that I teach my students and that I live by. Martin Luther King, Dr. Martin Luther King, 
was one of the greatest writers, orators, and intellectuals in the history of the United States of America. And part of that then means we must defy this corporate machine that reduces us to stereotypes. Having said that, I want to say I'm here because I'm a writer too. And it's taken several strands of work to get us to this stage, and we're going to talk about several things. Um, we're going to mark the birthday of Martin Luther King by talking about this brilliant exhibit that ends tomorrow. It's Tomorrow, the Museum of Fine Arts Houston is the last day for this powerful exhibit, Gordon Parks, Stokely Carmichael, and Black Power. That exhibit ends tomorrow. Um, I say that because there's three books that have taken us to get here. So at the end of this talk, I'm going to get mine signed by Lisa. <laughs> I'm going to refer to this often because this has the words and images that accompany that exhibit. Um, also, um, you're going to meet Devin in a little bit. Uh, Devin Allen has this powerful book, No Justice, No Peace, From the Civil Rights Movements to Black Lives Matter. Powerful, powerful book. Again, this is my copy. So <laughs> at the end, I will, I will get it signed. And um, I will say, too, I'm the author of the book, The Tip of the Pyramid, Cultivating Community Cultural Capital. And one thing I say in the book is that Lawyers contract language, poets liberate it. And that's really the tension that we're always under because that's what's happening with, when you go to the exhibit, you're going to see it's built around um, a profile that came out in Life magazine that was shot and written by Gordon Parks that talks about uh, Stokely Carmichael. Oh, can, you, can you walk us through that? Now, we have the curator here, which is, let's applause her craft. Thank you. <laughs> and as a way into this discussion, tell us about coming up with the exhibit and, and how it ties into what we're talking about today. Uh, well, the history of the exhibit is that uh, about five years ago, I went to the Gordon Parks Foundation, met uh, Peter Kuhnhart McCall, was not there yet, um, and basically said, please let me do something. Um, let me do an exhibition. And I was given about four or five options, um, but this, quite frankly, was the only one I saw, the only one I wanted to do, um, because I saw the absolute echoes to today, understood how media can frame and um, force certain um, readings on us. And this through the eyes and writing of just a master of his craft, Gordon Parks was the perfect way to explore that in 1966, 1967, and hopefully give everyone the tools to apply it to our current day. So the exhibition, as you mentioned, opens with the Life Magazine article, which was May 19th, 1967. Um, that article actually opens with an um, uncredited uh, introduction from one of Life Magazine's editors that takes the kind of popular stance on Stokely Carmichael, that he is a young man with an angry message. 
and shows him like raising his fist and gesturing at the crowd and anger and racial division and racial violence became the words applied to him. But it was Gordon Parks in his profile that, you know, wasn't the lawyer, he was the poet and really opened that up, gave you a full vision of Carmichael as a man, as a son, as a teacher, as a listener, um, and really tried to recuperate his image in the press as much as possible. That's awesome. And we'll come back to some of those points. Uh, another institution is the Gordon Parks Foundation. Um, can you tell us a little bit about why you have the foundation and, and how that tied in? Yes, yeah, so, um, so the Gordon Parks Foundation is responsible for stewarding, preserving, and, extends, and extending the legacy of Gordon Parks. Um, Gordon Parks, as evidenced in the exhibition, was a photographer, filmmaker, writer, musician, um, but he was probably best known for the work that he did as a staff photographer um, at Life Magazine, where he was hired as the first black staff photographer back in 1948, and he worked there for um, just close to two decades, creating some of the most pivotal, groundbreaking images of the civil rights era, images that really helped shape the movement. Um, and so the way that we do this work is twofold. Um, first, we partner with uh, institutions like the Museum of Fine Arts Houston to produce focused exhibitions and publications um, that highlight his work in depth. And part of what we try to do through this work, um, through the exhibitions and the books, is really bring in a multitude of voices and perspectives to, to illuminate the work from a variety of angles. And you see that in the expertly researched and beautifully um, installed exhibition at the museum. Um, and the other piece of what we do is we work to extend his legacy by supporting the work of artists who are following in his footsteps through fellowships, scholarships, and publications. And actually, this is the full circle here on the stage as Devin Allen was our first fellow back in 2017. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, so really, you know, through all of this work, what we're really thinking about, back to your point, Tony, is, is uh, art that's at the intersection of a visual language and social justice. What does that mean? You know, and Gordon famously said that he picked up a camera as his choice of weapon against poverty, intolerance, racism. And what he taught us was how art can really can really change the way people think, how art can enact change, that it matters where you see art, is that me, um, and how you see it. Uh, and he really keenly understood how it works in the world, and we try to illuminate that through his own work, but also support the work of artists like Devin, who are doing that work right now, and, and really shifting our perspective on so many issues out in the world and leading to change. And again, one other layer of what it takes to preserve a counter-narrative. Um, and Devin, you've mentioned that you learned a lot from Gordon Parks indirectly by studying and diving into his work. Tell us a little bit about that and what this exhibit and your work in relation to him means. Oh, yeah. Um, Gordon Parks, he changed my life. You know, like um, growing up in Baltimore is not the easiest place to grow up at. And I was lucky enough to stumble across photography. And I remember Googling famous black photographers and Gordon was like the only person that popped up. And I seen his work in Harlem and it re reminded me so much of where I come from and the things that I've seen, you know, at the, I think 
by the, at this age, when I found Gordon's work, probably like 23, 24, and I had lost about like 10 friends to gun violence, 10, 15, you know, friends murdered, you know, and I, and I was like, I want to be a photographer. Like everybody outside on the stoop like laughed at me, like, you got to go to school for that. And I was like, no, I don't. I'm going to watch YouTube and read books. And, um, and I set out to do that, and I didn't know what was, how fast it was going to come. You know, um, Mike, Mike Brown was 2014. My grandmother helped me buy my first camera in 2013. And then Freddie Gray in Baltimore, the Baltimore Uprising, 2015. And similar to Gordon, I wanted to control that narrative, you know, because I, f I found that in Baltimore and so many places like Baltimore, we never really get to speak for ourselves. And I knew that media was going to come in and basically create this narrative around Freddie Gray, talk about his record, oh, he had a knife on him and all these things, and I wanted to counteract that. And I set out to do that, and that would become, you know, my, you know, my work, my, my passion, my path, and, you know, studying Gordon to understand how he maneuvered those spaces and controlled the narrative, and that also helped shape it and counteract those narratives are very important to me. You know, speaking, you know, through the medium allows me to create my own narrative and speak for myself. That's powerful. And, and on that note, um, I do want to talk about your book again, No Justice, No Peace, From the Civil Rights Movement to Black Lives Matter. We're not going to get a chance to talk about uh, your complete trajectory, but you can learn more um, in, in your book. But I do want to bring this home because this is still going on, as you may or may not know. And here's some specific examples. Um, they're banning books right now, as you know. Uh, one of my fellow Libro Traficantes, Brian Paras, is right there. We're book smugglers. So books that are smuggled uh, are because they're banned, and we're not going to tolerate that. Having said that, we're, we're in the basic, uh, we're at point zero for that. So um, there was a Texas state representative who um, came up with a list of 850 books to challenge, to ban. And you'll notice a few things on there. Um, there were several authors with Spanish surnames. Uh, and also, if a title had Black Lives Matter in it, it made it to the list. You may have also heard that this brilliant project, the 1619 Project, it's being attacked right and left in different ways, in very different ways, uh, from the bullying of uh, librarians taking over libraries. Uh, you, you've heard of this attack on critical race theory, um, which is a curriculum. I say all that. Because if it seems abstract to talk about how Stokely Carmichael, other great American leaders were reduced to this caricature, the stereotype, that could hurt us. It's happening with Black Lives Matter. But your book is actually not just a fantastic work of art. You got some awesome writers in it. It's almost like a handbook on how to convey our community in full dimensions. Uh, can you tell folks a little bit about the the beginnings of that work for you? Because it's very powerful. Yeah, you know, like I never set out to, you know, like people are like, oh my God, you're an activist. I was like, I'm a concerned citizen. I never really set out, you know, to be an activist. You know, I just, you know, um, I had a God-given gift and I wanted to use that, you know, to, to, to push the needle forth to make, to make change. And I became an activist. And what, what I found, what I was really good at is using photography as a vehicle to amplify other people's voices and using it as a platform to launch other people's narrative forward. So when I started working on this book, 
you know, growing up in Baltimore, you know, it's a really small city. We have our own issues, just like any community. But as I started to expand my work, I got to travel, meet so many different people with different skin tones and different, you know, mindsets and from different places of the world, but still deal with the same type of issues that I deal with as a black man. And I, and I found collaboration there and I found love there and prosperity there. So what I wanted to do with this book to show how sim simple the term Black Lives Matter is and what we're asking for, but how it's so complex and there's so many different views and different viewpoints. And I might not understand them all, but they need to be heard. So I use my photography in this book to amplify voices. You'll see essays from, you know, you brought that up from, um, from, you know, like um, Ashley Monterosa, you know, who, who lost her brother to um, police after George Floyd, you know, or you might read an essay from D. Watkins, who's also from Baltimore, that writes a, a beautiful essay about the day after protests, or an essay from W.J. Lofton from Atlanta, who says, we pray to a different God, because uh, as, a, as a gay black man, he doesn't feel seen by Black Lives Matter. So you have all these different pockets of people that still aren't being heard. I just want to use my work to make sure that everyone can be heard. Feel free to applaud. Yes, don't hold back. Share that love. Now, I do want to point out, and I, I want to go to the um, to Gordon Park, Stokely Carmichael, and Black Power, and I want to flip to page 159, just to really give an example that um, this is not an exaggeration, not then and, and not now. Um, so as you alluded to, the beginning, and, and by the way, Life Magazine, to translate it into today's term, as you point out, it had 48 million readers at that time. I can translate that to my son's 48 million followers. Right? So, <laughs> um, and they basically set the tone for, for discourse and how community members were perceived. The editor wrote what I'm going to say would have been what the rest of the profile would have looked like, except... I'm also going to say um, Gordon Parks fought for his images and the words. There's only five images in there. You go to the exhibit, there's three rooms full. Um, and his words accompany the images because I'll just highlight one phrase from the editor and you can summarize some of it and then tell us a little bit about that um, interplay. Um, this is what the message would have looked like. Uh, Stokely Carmichael young man behind an angry message. That's the story the editor wanted to tell. Why did you, you know, t tell us, why didn't you include the article as a big part of it? And, and tell us how that plays into the whole juxtaposition of narratives. <laughs> um, well, it's important in order to understand that for Parks, this was almost like a recovery project, you know, really recovering Carmichael's message and his character. Um, because it had been maligned in the press so much, um, you kind of have to know about that process. You have to know that even though Life was going to publish Parks's essay, which is very fair and balanced, and Carmichael said it was the only fair profile done of him, um, you have to see what Parks was facing in doing this work. Um, and the thing that sticks in my mind really is, you know, Carmichael is elected SNCC chair in order to usher the group into this new movement, Black Power. He didn't invent it. It was like a 
upswell from the civil rights movement, a lot of different threads combining. And when he got up on stage, June 16th, 1966, in Greenwood, Mississippi, and announced black power, really the, you know, the white popular press lost their minds. They couldn't handle those two words together. And there's a article in the New York Times from a day later that says, and I'm, I'm going to um, try and quote it as accurately as I can remember it, but it's gonna be a little off. If black power was just about a black political voting block, then there would be nothing to quarrel about. But we know it's more devious than that. And so it's this immediate, immediate um, misdefinition that then would get applied to Carmichael's person. And, you know, so that's what we're facing. That's the environment Parks walked into, knowing that he's just trying to show you the truth of who this 25-year-old was. And can I just add, also, it's important, I mean, this, this position that he was in is so critical to underscore at this moment, because at this point, he was working at Life for almost 20 years, right? And he was the only black staff photographer, and he talks about what a conflicted position that was for him, because on the one hand, here he is as a black man given the opportunity to speak on behalf of black individuals through this magazine that had this amazing following that was largely white, and, you know, and he understood the power that came with that and the opportunity that came with that. On the other hand, he was very much aware that Life magazine was using him to gain access, to tell the story that they wanted to tell, and to have him get them access where he otherwise wouldn't have. You know, famously, in 1963, he was the first photographer allowed to photograph the Nation of Islam. He was the first one allowed, he was granted permission personally by Elijah Muhammad to come in and photograph and follow Malcolm X around the country. You know, and then he gets to Stokely. He creates all of these stories that provide an insider point of view. And then what's also remarkable is on top of that, he's allowed to, to submit writing to the magazine, which was unheard of for 90%, 95% of photographers, and especially unusual given who he was. And so the, you see the magazine doing all of these manipulations with that, right? So they, he submits his photographs, they select they want the ones that they want to show. Very often, the white journalists submit the writing as they do here with, you know, with the tagline. Sometimes they publish his writing, but separately from the rest of the article as a kind of sidebar. You know, so you see him trying to negotiate this and trying to play with it and say, okay, I don't always have control over how my images are seen in the magazine, what sort of text is gonna go along with them. So what can I do with my images to start shifting perceptions? How can I photograph someone like Stokely and change people's minds about how he was and make the photograph stand even in stark contrast to the text that they're published next to. And that's where his genius comes in and that's where he becomes a kind of activist with his camera. Is he, you know, is he's able to take pictures like no one else does where it makes you very much aware of who is behind the camera, who is speaking for whom, and who he's trying to talk to with those images, which is a new idea as we were just talking about um, in photojournalism and something that Devin has done so brilliantly with his work as well. You want to talk a little bit about that? Um, yeah, you know, because it still goes on today. You know, what Gordon was able to do, and she touched on it when he was able to follow, you know, Malcolm X, he actually, they actually wrote their own article, 
you know, how, how the, the Muslim faith was dangerous and all these things. But Gordon also wrote his perspective, which was, was fair. And he said, I, I might not agree with everything, but I stand with my brothers, you know. And even in, in this day, if you look at Black Lives Matter and how you have all lives matter and things that are anti-Black Lives Matter, where you can read these articles where they, they, don't, they don't hire black photographers to tell those stories, you know. Um, and in and, and that process, you know, for me, I actually put my work in the world, you know, because I understand already I was using social media because I, to be honest, didn't trust media. You know, all my images were published after the fact because I knew the importance of controlling my narrative. Because you might shoot the image, but you do not control what words are put to your photos. And once they acquire your work, you no longer own that narrative anymore. They dictate what that image means. They can create whatever they want to be. And that's the power behind a, photog- behind a photograph. It can, it can make a situation. It can inspire. It can, it can build someone up. It can destroy them. And, and, and media has a good way of, of dial, dialing that in or anything it doesn't, have, uh, doesn't agree with their moral compass. So, so you as an on, on. Oh, I just—I was just gonna say, you know, absolutely echoes to Parks because um, he taught one of our Houston photographers here. Uh, I don't know if Bob's in the room, but Bob Gomel, who was a Life photographer who worked with Gordon Parks at Life, told me that the golden rule was: if you didn't want to see it in print, don't shoot it, because you had absolutely no control after it left your camera. So. But you're basically putting in the words the um, the challenges of uh, African American Chicana Chicano photographers is that it sounds like you're saying you've got to be great at aesthetics you got to put the work in you got to be part lawyer you got to be part negotiator you got to be your own uh, agent is that fair to say yeah you have to be and 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 those are things you know you can. They don't teach you if you go to school for journalism, they're still not going to teach you how to navigate that space. Um, that's why I think I was lucky enough to you know be self-taught and and find my own way. You know, and I, and I was lucky enough to have mentors along the way. And, you know, um, and I think the biggest thing is that what I realized is when they, just Baltimore, for example, I remember I was the only photographer on the ground. And um, we were getting tear gas, pepper sprayed. And and the images, what I would do is I would shoot them in black and white and Wi-Fi to my phone and post while I was on the ground. So by the time CNN arrived, my stuff was already on Twitter and Instagram and people was already catching wind of what was going on. So... <laughs> And, and similar to Gordon, and, and I understood Baltimore, I understood the community because it's my community, I see, so I knew where everything was going on. And the narratives were where, oh, it's a, they're burning down the city, Baltimore's on fire. It was literally like two blocks, and that was it. And, and, and that's the importance of media. They, they, they send it on as one thing, and... You know, I was able to change that narrative and take it back to the point where I became the point person for ABC, Time, New York Times, Huffington Post. You know, um, and, and it's just it's interesting because I've seen it. We've seen it happen in Ferguson, um, where they 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 send in their photographers, they shoot. Um, twenty twenty was probably one of the biggest moments of Black Lives Matter after George Floyd, where everyone swelled into Minneapolis and everyone was documenting. I can't even count the amount of DMs and calls that I received about photographers losing their rights to their work because they were so adamant about just getting their work out and what was going on, they actually lost the rights to their work because they actually sold it off. But they don't tell you that when you're signing your contracts and you're putting your work out in the world. But these editors, 
and these publications have to be held accountable because similar to Gordon, they know when they can't get that access and they know who to go to and they know they, can, they can't pull one of those over on a well-seasoned journalist. You can't call me and say, we want you to go shoot this. And it's like, yeah, you got me. I, I need a 90-day close. You can retain rights for 90 days. After 90 days, the license comes back to me and I retain all rights to the image. You know, and they say, oh, we're going to give you a call later. All right, well, that's fine, you know. Um, and, and those are things that we have to share with our communities because, you know, photographers are very, very dangerous. We can be very, very dangerous. And, and, and I realized that when police officers start following me home and harassing me and suspending my license and, and, and things like that, we are, you know, artists, we, we give inspiration, we inspire, we, we activate other activists. You know, we, we give them, our work stands to test the time when that protest is over. We are the truth tellers, the light bringers, so, and they know that. You know, and we are very dangerous, and they understand it. That's why they either try to silence or um, blackball you, keep you out of spaces, or try to will you in close enough and try to create narratives around the work that you create. That's intense. Um, to put a cap on that, of course, we can come back to some of these topics in the Q&A. I hope you are going to fill out some of those cards, because I want to talk to them all night. But I want to share them with you, so if you've got some insights. I would say just one thing our terms on our terms. And I love that you're living that, and that's what we need to demand. Having said that, I do want to take a little, a, a little longer for this next part of the discussion. Again, to bring this home that this is going on. The media, corporate media, corporate entities continue to do this, and here's how. When you're watching the news next time, and you hear them talk about a flood of immigrants at the border, when they say an invasion at the border, okay. when the only time you see someone who's Mexican-American, Latino, is to talk about immigration issues, the same thing is going on. And I want to kind of bring it back to intersectionality because I want to ask, um, I want to ask you both, because when you go to the exhibit, you're going to see in Spanish, everything's translated right there on the boards. And, um, and then, you know, after you talk a little bit about that, I want to talk to you, too. In your book, you went out of your way. You know, you've got Chicana feminists thrown down in your book, which is awesome. So let me ask you this. Why is that important? How does this fit into everything that we're talking about, do you think? Uh, well, no one does this work alone, certainly. Um, and one of the important things for me in researching this exhibition was talking to every single person in those photos standing next to Stokely Carmichael as I could. Um, so I did more than a dozen interviews with the people that stood beside him, that worked in Lowndes County, that you know registered voters, that did all this work. And I wanted to make sure that their stories were also reflected in the Im images chosen. And, you know, again, just in tribute to Gordon Parks, anytime someone would tell me a story about Carmichael, you know, um, he would find the youngest kids in the audience to talk to before or after his speeches because he knew the work wouldn't be done with him. He wanted to pass it on to the next generation. Every time I heard those stories, I would turn back to the negatives and find that represented. Like Parks really did see him from every angle. And so, yes, I hope that that community is evident on the walls of the museum, those people that rode in those cars with Carmichael and organized those events and did the work on the ground next to him, that's evident in the exhibition, I hope so. 
And why, why include a Chicana family? Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know it's good. No, I mean, no, it was, it's, it's really important, this detail that Lisa just underscored. Because, and, you know, and Devin, you hit on this too when you were talking about what it meant for you to photograph in your community, is one of the things that set Gordon apart is that he didn't just, he refused to just swoop in, document, and get out. You know, like that wasn't, it wasn't just about gathering evidence, about, you know, illustrating he would spend time getting to know his subjects. He would take time and almost create the photographs that his editors maybe didn't need or want him to create because that's how he painted that picture. And you know, it brings to mind early on in his career in the 1940s when he was just you know, kind of getting traction. He was working for the Farm Security Administration, doing some fashion work for Vogue. Um, he met Ralph Ellison in New York, and Ralph Ellison asked him to work on a project together. It was this essay that was about um, the psychiatric clinic in New York, the Slafar Clinic, which was the first non-segregated clinic um, in New York City. It was located in Harlem. And Ellison wanted photographs to go along with this article that he wrote. And he wrote a manifesto for Gordon, which kind of became a guiding light for Gordon throughout his career. And the first line of that manifesto, or that instructional step, it was called the pictorial problem, was the title of it, is he said, create images that act as both document and symbol. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that became key, right? You don't just document. What are you trying to convey? What are you trying to do? Who are you trying to represent? And, you know, and how do you use that to create something new? And in fact, you know, there was, there's a letter that Ellison wrote to Richard Wright few months into the process where he said, I think Gordon has, is gonna be able to do something new in photojournalism. And so, you know, that, when you start thinking about that way and you start seeing how he spends time with people and how he's trying to see how Stokely saw the work that he's doing and convey that and how someone like Devin is saying, no, this is, my, this is actually my community. And I'm gonna tell you the news, but I'm gonna tell you from my point of view. And you get those images that tell the story without even documenting the headlines that's when it begins to do something more. And that's when it begins to speak to these broader communities that you were talking about. Um, and so I think that just that subtle change leads us to think a little bit differently and see a little bit differently. And I love that you have a, the voice of a Chicana feminist in your book. Uh, why? <laughs> um, it's always been collaboration in those spaces for, uh, for social change. And I found that out on my own, you know, just from I've been to so many protests um, and, and just being able to travel and seeing the support, you know, for my community. I just think it's important that everybody, you know, be heard, you know, that do the work. So I just always told myself that the work is not mine, you know, and I want to make sure that, you know, similar to Gordon, you know, inspired by him, I started teaching, you know, and I've been able to find so many different stories and things that I didn't know about that I was ignorant to um, and amongst me, even my peers and my communities. And I find that the camera is a good way to, to build and, and bring those connect, that connection together and words and photography are just, they just marry so well. And so what I've been doing is just making sure that all the work that I create doesn't just stop with me or just stop with my community. I want to expand and help other communities. And, and what I, I found this out when I started traveling to places and I spent a lot of time in, um, in Oakland and I spent a lot of time when I was hanging in Detroit um, working with Rib and I was teaching and that I, was, I wasn't equipped to tell every single story. But what I am equipped to do is to, to teach people how to tell their own stories. Yeah. And, um, and that's, I'm really big on that because I know how it feels to have people swoop in 
you know, and write a story about Baltimore. And all they did was just uh, watch The Wire one time and then try to write everything about <laughs> Baltimore as if they know. And, and, and it's the same from Chicago to Detroit to Oakland to D.C., New York, Philly, where these, 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 these people come in and they don't care. And, and these things become detrimental. If you tell someone who they are long enough, they'll start to believe in. I think that's a very dangerous thing. So I want to make sure that, you know, when I'm old and I'm no longer able to hold a camera, I've actually activated the next generation of photographers to tell their own stories and speak for people who can't speak for themselves. I love what you're saying, too, because the thing that doesn't make news is um, if you go to poetry open mics, you're going to see young black poets and young Latino poets hanging out, loving literature. Something happens between that minute and when they get into the classrooms established by systems that where they think we don't like to read and write, uh, you know, we don't like literature. The other thing you're going to see, um, you'll see some awesome photos today, I hope, where you're going to see uh, Dr. Martin Luther King with Cesar Chavez. Um, you probably won't see some of the awesome photos of, uh, you see, Black Panthers and Chicano Brown Berets. Uh, you mentioned in the community and the struggles, everybody was there together helping each other. Uh, let's brag about Houston. Um, during um, the Black Lives Matter march here in Houston, I think it was over, was it 40,000 people? Six, was it 60,000? 60, 60,000 people here. And um, Houston plays a big, a big role. Uh, you, you know, you, you document uh, George Floyd, your um, Houston connections, and you bring out through some of what you found Houston's role at, at, the, uh, at the exhibit. Tell, tell us a little bit about that. Bring on Houston. Anybody here from Houston? Yeah. <laughs> couple, uh, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, again, just kind of thinking about how Park structured his essay. He's following Carmichael from place to place. He's always mentioning where he is. And I learned that just days after the Life magazine essay is published, Carmichael is here in Houston. Um, he was speaking at TSU and University of Houston, so we dedicated a, a section of our exhibition to that. Um, why Carmichael came to Houston, what brought him here, what was going on on campuses, um, what led to the invasion of TSU, and we use that language very specifically, the invasion of TSU, and um, put him right next to, um, in the exhibition, the videos of Carmichael speaking here next to a video of Parks speaking here because Houston's amazing. We've brought all these people here. They've been here for reasons. I love the video of Gordon Parks speaking. The audience is truly in the palm of his hand, like laughing at all the right moments, sighing at all the right moments. It's really fantastic. But yes, that Houston element is really important to us and important to the show. And it's brand new research. Um, shout out to Brittany Levingston um, for putting together that for us. And truly it's things that have never been seen before about our own community. If you have a chance, uh, it really is moving to see the video of Stokely Carmichael in his own words. Um, so brilliant. You know, there's a great moment where he's at a press conference and, and you talk about how he wrote press release after press release with a counter narrative. He is basically playing intellectual chess with reporters that want him to talk like that editor wrote, was writing, but he was using, you know, he was free, he was liberating language and navigating, and you could see, I could see it, it was powerful seeing his words, and I'm glad that's saved because that's what, 
that, that's what the whole exhibit is about. So, uh, so please, if you do have a chance, go check out the exhibitor. Demand that it comes back. Uh, you know, <laughs> you know, See, we can do. You, you, got, any, you got any connections? <laughs> you want to brag on a little bit? I know you, we're both from Chicago originally. Well, I'm right, exactly. originally from Chicago. Anybody here from Chicago? But, but I mean, I love that um, the Gordon Parks Foundation owns that video of Gordon Parks at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston because he's he is so charming. I he's mean, such a charmer. Oh my gosh. I mean, he was, that was what was so incredible about him, is that the way in which he navigated the world. I mean, he, was, he understood how to talk to people. He understood how to reach out to people. That's why he also was able to not just be a photographer. You know, he was a writer, he was a filmmaker. I don't know how many of you know, but he wrote and directed Shaft. That's kind of what I feel like most people who don't know him as a photographer, they know him as the guy who did Shaft. Um, you know, and he was a composer. He invented his own um, way of composing, his own note-taking methodology because he was self-taught and he didn't know how to read music. I mean, so he was somebody who understood how to take the raw material of the world and translate it to his language, you know, and you see that come through in this video where he's just talking to a museum audience and talking about his life and talking about his inspiration and how he did things and you just begin to understand how he was able to take these materials that he chose as his weapons, right, as we said earlier on, and reinvent them in a way and really rethink through how to use them and where they exist and to whom they speak to. And he was incredibly successful at it. But the other thing to keep in mind is that he was also heavily criticized for that as well. You know, as much as he was revered and as much as by the 1970s he was a public figure. You know, 1970, in 1969, he directs, he becomes the first black director to direct a major Hollywood film. You know, by 1971, he does, uh, he does uh, Shaft. So at that point, he's a celebrity. And at that point, he also begins to be attacked by some of his colleagues who are saying, you're just trying to appeal to everybody. You're trying to pander to a white audience. You know, and so it's this like narrow line that he walks that I think is really important to keep in mind with all of this kind of work, you know, is that to become aware of how it's seen from multiple perspectives because there's the point of who gets to speak to who, for whom and who are the voices, but the other piece of it is, you know, it's like that triangle, you know, if you think it's like the artist, the subject, and then the audience, right? And the projections that the audience brings to the work and the reading and the way in which it's interpreted. And that's something that's very top of mind to him throughout his career and that he understood how to play and work through and reinvent. Um, and I would say, Devin, I'm just loving sitting here listening to you, thinking about all the ways you truly do parallel Gordon Parks, um, because what you said earlier about, you know, being there and letting somebody else shine in that moment. Um, as I was doing the interviews with everyone in these photos, um, you know, I would ask them what was going on in this moment, what do you remember most, and we would get, uh, you know, probably 20 minutes into the conversation and then they'd stop and be like, wait a minute, where did you get this photograph? And I said, oh, it was at the Gordon Parks Foundation. They'd all stop and say, Gordon Parks was there? 
like not a single person, despite the fact that he's pretty famous at this moment, he has that big bushy mustache, which he loves and he keeps his whole life, not a single one of them remembered him being in the room. I mean, they had important work to do and they were doing it, but he always found a way to kind of just step back and let other people shine and tell their own stories. And I just love that. Yeah, you know, um, he's still like, and different, you know, in the spiritual sense, still guiding a lot of us in this space. And I always tell this story, you know, because my career just happened so fast. I was like literally like this knucklehead kid. I had a, had a daughter young. I didn't want to be in the streets no more. I found art. And then God was like, all right, well, you're here now. Uh, <laughs> you, got, you got some big shoes to fill. You know, my career literally time covered 2015. First going Parks Fellow 2017. You know, and I remember in 2000. 16, um, when I got the call, you know, Peter called me and was like, I'm really hard to get in contact with. And then I think just growing up in Baltimore, growing up in the streets, I really don't, I had to get rid of this and deprogram myself, but I don't trust anybody. I think everybody's trying to harm me. This is kind of like this defense mechanism thing. And I remember talking to Peter, you know, and he was, he called me back like a year later. He was like, how does it feel to be the first Going Parks fellow? And I was like, what? And I remember sitting down with Robert Houston, who um, passed away, unfortunately, uh, last year due to COVID, but um, was a mentee of Gordon, who's also from Baltimore. And I remember when I first met him, I got to, in, he, um, I got to sit in and one of his interviews for the uh, Reginald F. Lewis Museum. And he was telling a story about Gordon. And um, Robert Houston was in college in Boston. And he was like, I cannot take this. I really want to be a photographer. I got what it takes. I'm going to New York. Leaves college, goes to New York, sneaks into life. Sneaks into Gordon's office, tells his, uh, tells his like, secretary that he has a meeting, and he doesn't. So he sneaks in there and throws his portfolio on Gordon's parks his desk and just wakes. So Gordon comes in, reviews the portfolio, and says, uh, he's, just, he's just sitting there humming, like, hmm, hmm, hmm. <laughs> um, he says, well, Robert, uh, you don't got a lot of pictures of people. What, you don't like people? And then Robert Houston said, well, I could take them and leave them. Then he said, well... <laughs> If you want to be in this industry, you need to take it, you know, and that opened up the door for Robert to shoot um, Martin Luther King, to shoot the Poor People campaign in D.C., you know, and made him one of my favorite photographers, you know, and, and that's what I think is Gordon works, shines, you know, he was able to, what I want to do, you know, inspired by him, and just he was able to uplift so many people, you know, as he pulled himself up, he pulled people up with him, and not in a sense of, you owe me one, you know, or I'm doing this and I want, I'm doing it to receive something. He's like, because you belong there. I just want to help you get you there. And I think that's something that um, a lot of people can forget, definitely in this day and age where we are so concerned about what's in front of us that we're not looking outward and understanding that some of our superpowers are actually just helping others and really expanding them and elevating them, you know, and getting people to where they need to be. Y'all enjoying this? <laughs> oh, I feel like I, mean, I, I bring that up because um, if you take ethnic studies, which they don't teach mandatory in Texas, this is when I get to teach uh, ethnic studies in classes, students love it. They love it. It's like a great day in class. I have to tell them to leave class. <laughs> I'm like, class is over. You got to go. It's over. You know? uh, I say that then. Because we can't touch on all these topics. This should be household material. But I want you to know, Texas State Representative Christina Morales, along with State Representative 
Alma Allen and Jean Wu have a bill that would make Mexican-American history and African-American history count towards high school graduation requirements in Texas. So. So keep an eye on that. Uh, and for the nonprofit folks that run the place, don't get scared. I didn't say anything about uh, against it or for it. So, you know, I, still my civil liberties to admit, just tell you what's going on. And uh, on that note, too, we've been talking about kind of the dramatization of the struggle. There's also a passive way to, to keep us from our ultimate fulfillment. And that happens with this new movement against uh, liberal arts. And we're this, and I say this too, again, I'm not against them. My, my oldest son broke my heart, would not become a poet, and you know, <laughs> he just graduated. He's a, he, he's, he's not, he, he did um, the whole field in, um, uh, he launches rockets now. He's a rocket scientist, you know. <laughs> STEAM, there's the whole STEAM. <laughs> STEAM is art, exact, stems with the arts, right? So not just one field, but you combine them. Let me ask you this, Devin. Right now, um, and there's some, I hear young people that want to be artists, and they get talked out of it for different ways. Devin. <laughs> Would you tell a young person that comes up to you and says, man, I love art. I want to be a photographer. What would you tell that person? I asked him, um, what you need? What you need help with? You know, um, <laughs> you know like I literally, like, uh, I was just teaching at the International Center of Photography, um, literally had to leave in the middle of the presentation so I can get here. Um, and I've been teaching since I started. So literally some of my kids have learned with me. As um, soon as I got my time cover, you know, um, I just had the media was like at my fingertips. It's like, what can I do to give back to my community? And I thought about it as I was on the front lines. Like once again, we was getting tear gas, pepper spray. I, rem I have photos of kids on bikes fearless at like eight years old, riding between National Guard and... You know, um, and we, you know, we getting shot with pellets and all types of stuff. And it's, and a lot of people forget the Baltimore uprising was st started by high school kids. That's what people do not talk about. It started because I, I can't believe we was playing the Red Sox or the Cubs or something. The baseball fans were upset that the the protest was so big they shut down the game so nobody could go. <laughs> and they thought it was a good idea. Once again, it's still Baltimore. I don't care if we down the harbor, we in a nice part. It's still Baltimore. And you decide to throw food at kids that's protested, calling them the N-word, calling them monkeys. That's how it actually started. That turned into a whole fight between kids and, and adults and the destroying of police cars, which carried over to the following weekend of Freddie Gray's funeral, where they were so scared about another, some more actions. They actually sucked, shut down public transportation, um, and had the, the kids stuck at, um, at the local mall where they catch the bus at and then met them with um, ride gear and everything. And that's when the youth in the community clashed with police officers. And I just remember like, what can I do? And I was like, all right, I was able to take a camera and now I have this huge platform. I went to sleep with 20,000 followers. I woke up with 70. You know, every day was more publications, images everywhere, interviews. and. And I'm from West Baltimore, I don't know anything about it. I don't know what I'm doing. It's literally, all right, my, you on emails, my uncle, you my manager, let's go. <laughs> this is a family business now, let's go. And, and I was like, I'm going to start. Mind you, I don't know anything about photography. I only had a camera for like a year or two, year and a half. And, and it's like, all right, I, I don't know nothing about like ISO, all the technical stuff. I turn the camera on, 
when I t- turn this thing, it gets bright. It's too bright. <laughs> I turn this thing, it gets dark, and it snaps faster. Got it. And that's all I knew. And I was like, well, I'm going to teach inner city kids photography. And I started a GoFundMe, you know, and I was able, um, I raised like $3,000 the first week. Russell Simmons found me by way of uh, DeRay McKesson, who's from Baltimore. Y'all probably know he wear a blue vest all the time. And um, he was like, Russell Simmons is looking for you. I'm like, what are you looking for me for? He was like, I don't know. Just answer the phone when they call. And they called. He actually donated like a $20,000 grant to the, to the youth program. And at the time, it was called and to inspire the youth because that's all I wanted to do. And I remember like going to the local camera store, th- buying a bunch of Canon and Nikon camera bags and throwing them in my little hatchback and going down to the projects where, in the area where um, uh, Freddie Gray was from because the kids... They had shut down all public transportation. All schools were closed. We were basically in martial law. You couldn't be out when the sun went down. If you were caught, it didn't matter who you were. You was getting snatched up. You wasn't getting, you wasn't getting like processed. You were just getting held. And um, to to the community f- turned this old laundromat into what they called the kids' safe zone. So people started donating Xboxes, food, and stuff, so we can get our kids off the street. So I went down there, and. I hopped out the car because I knew the lady that, that ran it. And I was like, who wanted to learn photography? And like, I just remember this one little kid in the back, like, nobody want to learn that shit. And I was like, oh my God, they cussed me out. And I was like, well, I was like, you want to learn photography? This is what I was able to do. And I'm going to Asia with Steph Curry next week. And they was like, oh, for real? I was like, yes, I, I work, I'm working with Under Armour now. And they was like, oh, give me that camera. You know, and, and then from there, you know, um, that was in 2015. You know, um, I've given out, I stopped counting at like 600. I've given out 600 cameras now. And, and more some to young people. Um, to young people. I've, uh, one of my kids, uh, one of my kids got a full ride to NYU. I was able to partner with Red Bull. One of my kids is at um, Baltimore School of the Arts, the same school that Tupac and and um, Jada um, Jada Pinkett went to. Um, it's been an amazing journey. I've seen a change in the community um, with with cameras. It camera helps with depression, um, anxiety, PTSD. You know, um, my kids have done art shows and documentaries, and you know, I would tell any kid that wants to learn photography or learn art in general. I think definitely in this day and age, showing them not the, just the joyous side of it, but how to weaponize it also, so they can. You know, and that's what I was teaching in uh, internet um, at, uh, in New York. How to use photography to tell stories, and and you know, some of the kids are from the Bronx, some are from Queens, from Harlem, and they're like, oh well, we have a food desert, or um, they are attacking um, our parents, um, parents in the community that do um, food trucks. I want to document that. You know, these kids, you know, with social media, they they they're fast learning. They're on a whole nother you know, leveled than what I was when I was growing up. I wasn't where, I just wanted to be Bruce Lee or Michael Jordan. These kids are just on a whole nother level. So we have to keep them engaged and let them know and not let them just, you know, let people tell them what they are, you know, and, and, and just writing and photography and art in general builds confidence and helps build personality. And, it, and, a lot, and it, it helps me with my anxiety and PTSD. And, and it basically allows you to digest the word or regurgitate it to everyone else. And, and, and that's very, very important. Mm-hmm. So for any kid, long story short, yes, do it. <laughs> well, create, create a few more artists. So should they become curators? <laughs> I'm gonna say I'm gonna say yes for her. We need more curators. We need more curators, more editors. You know, you don't have to. You know, we need 
and that's kind of like one of the issues with controlling the narrative and what we're talking about today. Yes, we have a lot of people that can create the work, but who can who can yeah. who can digest it and get it to the rest of the world? Who can curate it and, and make it or simplify it so everyone can get a full understanding? Who can get it across the finish line? So we need art historians. We need all of those things to to, to get the job done. Yeah, that's so appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> And we need we need yeah. more we need more grant writers too. Yeah, like, right. We need more grant, grant more writers fu funding and, and all for the that arts. Too, yeah. you know, funding, <laughs> funding for, for the, the arts. arts. But it's true. I mean, to your point, that's exactly it. Is that I think there's more of an awareness now of the way in which the visual arts and the arts in general seeps into all of these different fields and can really evolve them and transform them, transform them. And we need an embrace of just the arts and education and an understanding and appreciation of how important that is and how it could be not just utilized, but as you just said, weaponized um, to do good. And, you know, and I think there's so many different opportunities in the arts right now, and there's you know, so many more professions that you can go into having studied the arts that you, know, I can, you can only hope that it just evolves further. <laughs> Curation, um, yes or no? Yeah. No, yes, yes, um, 100%. Uh, I grew up in Youngstown, Ohio, uh, which is, thank you, yes. Uh, <laughs> um, not, you know, the greatest location for the arts in the world. It's steel mills, it's immigrants, it's crime. You know, we were known as Crime Town USA for a very long time. And so um, I didn't know that there was something called being a curator growing up. I didn't know that. No one grows up wanting to be a curator. Yeah. No one grows up wanting to be a curator. There are still days where I'm like, oh, I don't know. Um, but no, genuinely. And so uh, I feel that's a lot of my job, too. Like, whenever I'm giving school tours, like, what is a curator? What do I do? Like, I get to be the megaphone for artists. Isn't that so amazing and so great? And so just making clear that there are more professions in the arts than just artists, that there is this entire support structure around what artists do is like incredibly important to me because I wish I knew earlier too. Yeah, I was going to just um, piggyback on that, you know, just uh, like the importance we were talking about this earlier, just trying to, the, with the museum, just trying to acquire work, definitely from, you know, from black and brown artists where, you know, they might not even own the work anymore because they are taken advantage of because they don't have the educational uh, you know, knowledge to know what they're getting into, you know, and I've been lucky enough, I learned so much being a Gordon Parks fellow and, you know, um, and being able to just, just network with so many different, you know, curators and things like that. And what I, what I can say, you know, and I think this is something that's been woven through this entire conversation between Carmichael and Gordon or Gordon and Malcolm X, that it's a collaboration amongst us all you know, to get across that, that finish line, you know, and that's something, you have to build a village around you, you know, um, in, in this world and anything that you do, I believe, and I think art, you know, knowing curators that have the same moral compass as you, editors, you know, um, writers, you know, um, in my book, I collaborate about 20 different writers from 20 different walks of life, you know, and, and it's really, really, really important that we share that knowledge. I find that in the art world, everybody like, 
I'm not going to let you know what I do and hoard all the knowledge. And it's like, you know, it's not fair. You know, and I find, you know, being a black and brown artist that might not come from that traditional sense, we don't get those opportunities. And that's why I'm so adamant when, you know, you say, oh, I want to acquire some of your work. Oh, I have it all lined up. I will have it on your desk, you know, because we have to break the mold, you know. And, um, and that's what I, I want to commend on. The Gordon Parks Foundation is doing an amazing job. Like, one of the things they do, they gave me a grant where I was able to teach kids with autism and intellectual disabilities photography, you know, but also they listen to the artists. They ask me, Devin, what do you want to do? What, what you got going on? You know, like, who, who would you like to be the next fellow? Like, you have anybody in mind? You know, and I said, oh, got this guy, Photo Drake, check him out. You know, and he's the new fellow. You know, I've been able to just go to a gala and, like, and, and, and you know, meet Spike Lee and, and further my career, and, I, and we need more foundations like going, but unfortunately, you, you look at the, just the, the path that a lot of the black and brown artists, we don't have what Gordon had, you know, and I think it's important for curators and museums to start looking at people outside that might not have went to these institutions and, and things like that, you know, that's something that I'm still learning, like, I want to learn more, you know, I've been learning as I go and learning from people, but everybody don't have the same platform opportunities that I have. I believe we have some we're about to wrap it up. Do we have any questions? She has no index cards in her hand. So, I think some folks wanted to ask some questions. So I'm gonna let her go around and, and get her get your, the questions in um, yeah, folks as, as we pens. assemble. Yeah. And yeah, I think uh, yes, she'll be going around yeah. to to get that. And then I do I do want to ask you about the work. So as we get the the questions in, because I want to hear from the folks. Yeah. Um, well, I'm going to defer to, to David. Say it again. Oh, are there, and also we'll check on questions in the chat. Questions in the chat. So looking for questions in the chat, questions on the card. And I appreciate you guys. You guys have been a great audience. Round of applause for yourselves, please. I mean... I really enjoy the, the, the energy that you brought today. So looking forward to, to some of your thoughts as they get collected. And uh, I, I will share one thing about curating, too. You pointed out that you had a choice of four projects. So it's your sensibility that chose this one. And the other thing you shared with us, um, we, um, I got a chance to talk to them. It is archived on the Nuestra Palabra podcast. Uh, you can go to our website to watch that as well. Uh, Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say. But you also mentioned that the, um, the exhibit is just a, you, you've, you had to develop a lot of the negatives. So they were just negatives that were at the foundation. Yeah, they were never printed. So the way it would work is that Gordon would shoot several dozens, you know, sometimes hundreds of rolls of film. He would create contact sheets and then he would pick just a handful of images that would be printed actually by the Life Magazine lab, you know. And so what you have actually for every story is that it's almost like three tiers. You have the story Gordon shot, you have the selection that he made for Life Magazine, and then you'd have what the editors would actually select. So to be able to go backwards, which is what Lisa did, and really construct what Gordon did in terms of following Stokely and you know, mapping out that whole trajectory and you know, their travels together was really extraordinary. And, you know, and luckily, we have the ability, Gordon... Um, with the foundation, we have the ability to do that. You know, he gave us permission to go in and really take a deep 
deep dive into our archive. And it's really interesting to look at the contact sheets because very often, you know, he would mark the contact sheets and he would say, I want to print this one. I want to crop it this way. This one's bad, you know. And you can sort of see how he thought about it and to compare that with what Life Magazine did, it is fascinating. And I'm going to go to the questions. Um, this person wrote the most legibly and the largest. So that's what... So, so that's, um, and my contacts are fuzzy. So... Uh, <laughs> How do you see Dr. King's legacy as it relates to creating transformational images? I'm going to be the professor that stares all the students down. Well, I mean, I think I'm going to take it one step back, but I think what's really important to keep in mind is that what made the, one of the things that made the civil rights movement so extraordinary in terms of the media is that they understood, all the main figures and the main organizations in the movement understood the power of images. And photography was a tool that this, that were used by various members of the civil rights movement. There were SNCC photographers, you know, that were sort of hired by SNCC to create images of the civil rights movement and of the injustices that were happening by SNCC, you know, so they, were keenly aware of what, of the power of photographs and understood that one of the ways in which they were gonna get their message across was not just creating images, but creating counter images to what they were seeing. And so I think, you know, Martin Luther King belongs to that legacy as well. You know, he utilized images. He, you know, welcomed this documentation and, you know, and, and how it was being seen. And that's why we, you know, and the most powerful images we have today of the civil rights movement were created by the movement itself. You know, so I think that's yeah. really important to keep in mind. And I should say, for those of you who don't know, uh, Stokely Carmichael and Dr. Martin Luther King were very close. Um, they were friends, they marched together, they did a lot together, and King wasn't necessarily against the idea of black power, he was against the phrase, because he understood the mental images that came into play with those two words together. So there were there are a lot of conversations and writings back and forth between the two that I read that it was literally just about the framing of this movement that was problematic. They understood how the media works. Exactly. They really understood it and they knew that that was gonna be one of the most important tools they had at their disposal. And they, you know, the way in which they used images and text was really transformational. Uh, we only got 10 minutes left, so I'm gonna throw in another question that was here. Uh, touches on that, saying, we've used the term weaponized, does not, might that alarm the folks who oppose this movement? Why use weaponize versus uh, a different term? I kind of paraphrase that, but it goes along those lines. I got my thoughts. What are your thoughts? I, I use I the term because it was weaponized against me as a person that had been oppressed by it for so long. So it's basically just turning around and using the weapon that was used against me. You know, if you look at, you know, Deborah Willis, you know, um, if you look at Through a Lens Darkly, which is an amazing film, you can watch it on YouTube, inspired by a book by Deb Willis, it shows how the, how the camera was weaponized against black people, how they would hire free black people to do outlandish things and create these false narratives, oh, eating oversized watermelons, choking chickens, where they were actually photo shoots, and, and that was proven. So using the word weaponized, I'm just, you know, I use that word because that was, it was used against me, so I'm just taking that back and then using it 
you know, to tell my, my own truth. And I wanted to answer last because, so when, so just, you may not know this, um, in 2012, right-wing Republicans in Arizona banned Mexican-American studies. And uh, some, of my, some of my colleagues in the room, we became Libre Traficantes. We said, if you're going to ban our history, we're going to make more. And we smuggled the books back into Arizona. There was some of our own community that said, hey, don't use that word Libre Traficante because it refers to drug trafficking. Right? And you say, well, we're, no, one, our terms on our terms, we're taking the words back. And guess what? They're banning us. It, it, it can't get worse than that. And if we allow that, it's going to get worse. We're going to weaponize it. Why? They're, they're following you. Police are following you. Guess what? They're banning books. They're getting into college. So I hear folks when they say that. I respect them. I respect my elders. I'm not going to make them feel bad. But when I'm out there on the line, they're coming after us. I'm going to stand up for it. I will weaponize language. I do it on a daily basis, too. And we were liberated as well. So um, ah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There was a... Uh, okay. We got about three minutes left. Oh, man, these are great questions. Five minutes. Excellent. Um, I, Emmett Till's <laughs> mother insisted on an open casket photograph by Jet Magazine. What is the contribution of Ebony and Jet to the counter narrative? What was Park's interaction with Ebony and Jet? He briefly worked uh, with those magazines early on in his career. Um, they were really interesting publications. Again, you have to th remember who the audiences were. Um, and what they were offering was a counter-narrative in some respect, but they were also trying to really focus on positive images of black communities and black life. And so the kinds of stories that you see in those magazines, um, you know, were not, were, it wasn't just about here's our point of view about what you see in the white media, it was also here are the stories that you don't see in the white press, and here are the images to Devin's point, that you just don't see at all. And that was a huge part of it as well. Um, and yeah, and Gordon worked with them briefly, but he felt at some point like he could make more of an impact by reaching out to, by, by being a black voice within a white space. Um, and, you know, and helping to expand that and move beyond it, so. Quick answer. <laughs> My, okay. Um, and we can go back to some, I'm going to combine two questions. Uh, how do you feel the corporate centralization of media away from local media influences how these stories are told? And I'm going to combine it with the other question. The last part is, how do you hold institutions accountable? Long pause. <laughs> they, are you sure this isn't a graduate school seminar? Because those <laughs> I think it's just to go back to what I was saying earlier. I think it is about demanding to see, to just see more voices and seeing more, to expand what we see in institutions and, and question, again, who the voices are and who's being represented. And also making that, you know, I think part of it is what you see in institutions, but it's also who are those institutions accessible to and who gets to be in those spaces. So I think, you know, to have to constantly be questioning that, to constantly be, 
you know, demanding that you have inclusivity on all fronts in terms of, again, what is being shown and who's allowed in is one way of holding accountable. But it is, I mean, I think part of the reason why Lisa and I are both like, it's really difficult work. You know, there's a lot of work to be done. If you look back, and I'm only speaking to museums because that's the world that professionally that I came from and how museums were set up and the history of museums dating back to, you know, forever, you know, they, they were set up as elitist institu exclusionary institutions. And so there's a lot of work to be done in terms of expanding the definitions mm -hmm. of what these places are and who they're for and who gets represented within them. And we are seeing a lot of really incredible change, but there's still a ton of work to be done. And I think uh, Devin does it in his work by one, uh, insisting be treated as an intellectual, as a full-fledged artist. And I think, too, um, one thing that I think that um, we have in common, too, is we're on community terms. So the idea is that we're acting and functioning like a community countering that corporate approach. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's, it's also up to the artist, too. You know, I know it's difficult navigating those spaces when you're on assignments and you, you want these jobs and you want these. You have to put your personal accolades to the side. Like, I know we all want covers and we all want our work to be seen but at what cost you know is it is it, is it that you got to think about is it detrimental to the community that you're documenting and it's also we gotta like me i say no that's like my favorite thing like when people ask me to do certain things i say no um perfect example uh even down to how stories are told like like i said earlier i'm not equipped to tell every single story but it's also on helping you know using your network to basically give other people opportunities. Like, like New York Times was like, hey, we want you to come shoot the Women's March. We love what you did in Baltimore. And I was like, yeah, black man died. I'm a black man, so I'm very connected to it. But I'm going to give you a list of some amazing women photographers that I think can document that. So that needs to happen more collaborative, giving people voices to those spaces. And also, when you do see horrible articles and things that are, are written, call them out. I remember New York Times hired a, a, hired a photographer from another part of Merlin that lives in New York to come to Baltimore to shoot a, uh, to shoot a story about um, the 300 some murders um, in a year that we had, and all he did was take a picture of a fly on an abandoned car wash. No, we called him out. Like, we lost 300 people this year to gun violence. You're not about to just sully their names and, 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 not, and, and make it, and then just do that. We're not about to do that, you know? So I think it's more so calling, calling people out, you know, on the artist side, watch the job that you take, you know, because a lot of editors do get called out, but they're protected and, and they, they're, they're to that level where you can't touch them, but you cannot take that job. You can just call them out on their bull crap, you know, and that's what I try to do. And I don't, wait, I don't wor worry about magazines and stuff like that. I, I create the work for my community, you know. I create work that I feel and I give it back to the community and I put it into the world. And then if the magazine want it, you can come and ask me for it and then this is the narrative that's coming with it. So this is the last question, sorry folks. Uh, and it's about HBCUs. Uh, I also wanna throw in before we, we, we talk about that, um, you've got the video of Stokely uh, at, uh, at Texas Southern University. I do wanna say something about Texas Southern University. Um, Texas Southern University's law school has the largest number of Latinos enrolled in it than any other law school in Texas, if not the country. So that's awesome, that's awesome. And the question here, are there any HBCU grads here who knew or attended the Stokely rallies? Oh, wow. All right, yeah! Wow. We're gonna give you the last word. Give us some words of wisdom about that.
Tell us your name. Oh, dear me. <laughs> Thank you. I'm on TV. <laughs> My name is Sandy Newkirk now. It was Sandy Martin back then. And I was a, um, on, on the campus, and we all attended everything. That was when I first learned that the media would take information and twist it and change it because Muhammad Ali was there a lot. And of course, he hung close to the latest dormitories. <laughs> and we would rush back. We'd see the cameras, and we'd rush back to the dormitory at the end of the day to see the news, to see how things were reported. And they were cut and pasted and turned around and taken out of context and all of that. At the time I was there, Mac Jones was the SNCC um, a faculty advisor, and he was fired because of his participation there. And uh, when I went later to graduate school, this booming voice came over uh, the loudspeaker one day, not over the loudspeaker, up the stairs. I was looking for uh, funds to stay there because something had happened to my um, scholarship. And he says, Miss TSU, what are you doing here? And I looked and there was Mac Jones. And when I told him what I was doing, he said, I am here now, I have just received a Ford Foundation grant. And if I remember correctly, you were in the School of Business, so I need you to come to my office and talk. And I worked in his office from then until I graduated. So. It was say, an say interesting. Your name. Say your name one more time, please. Sandra Martin back then, Sandy Newkirk now. When I was on the elevator yesterday leaving the um, exhibit, a young man with dreads about your age came to me and said, did you know anything about the Stokely marches? And I said, yes, I was at Texas Southern. And he said that his father was at Florida A&M. And Stokely came down there to talk with the students, and he pulled up on his camera a picture of his father in the audience. So Stokely went from one of the H, uh, historically black, black college and universities from one to the other, you know, rallying students and whatnot. It's just that Texas Southern's experience turned into a riot invasion. And there was a gentleman yesterday at the uh, in the auditorium at the Brown Auditorium who had been in the Lanier Hall for Men uh, dormitory that night and he talked about his experiences and how afraid he was. And then there was also another uh, gentleman in the audience who said he was from Texas Southern and he was a student that lived out of the dormitory out in the city and how they came to the rescue of those down at the, uh, that were arrested that night. So it's, uh, it's, I have friends that would not even come to see any of these exhibits because they were so traumatized by what happened way back then. Thank you for your time. So you remember at the very beginning, uh, our moderator asked a question about why is a Chicano moderating this panel? Well, there's one thing I know we all know, and I think it was exhibited uh, through your conversation, your talk just a second ago, this panel, 
the, really the souls, the saints that are in amongst us today is that one thing about Dr. King, he was truly an ecumenical individual. I mean, he was somebody who could, as we discussed today, could move so seamlessly, so comfortably out of so many different mediums. He was comfortable with so many different kinds of people. Uh, young, old, uh, we, a few years ago, we do a uh, program, as I mentioned, every Martin Luther King's birthday. A few years ago, we had Reverend Bill uh, um, Lawson, not Bill Lawson, uh, Lafayette, Bernard Lafayette, one of the founders, co-founders of Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee on the dais with the former ambassador from India to the United States talking about Gandhi's influence on King. I mean, this is the kind of intellect, uh, the kind of curiosity. So first of all, let's again say thanks to the panel who also made this truly an ecumenical uh, afternoon. Thank you all so much. <clears throat> One of the reasons we were really watching the time today is the MFA, the Museum of Fine Arts Houston, closes at 6. So you could get over and see this exhibit while it's still really, really uh, right at you right now. And also, uh, the museum will be open tomorrow, which is not usually open on Monday. And tomorrow, as I think uh, Tony pointed out, is the last day of the run of this exhibition. So definitely get another chance to see it tomorrow. Uh, the chapel, since COVID, we haven't been open on Monday either, but we are open tomorrow. And one of the things that we've done, uh, uh, we will be open from 10 to 6, I believe. And then uh, at 11, 1, 3, and 5 p.m., broadcast inside and outside on the plaza, we'll have different speeches and sermons of Dr. King uh, broadcast. So it's a really, really another way to interact, very powerful experience. So I really would highly invite you to come. As I mentioned, this is being recorded. We recorded today's event. It'll be posted on our website in the next few days. So I really hope you'll uh, take time to uh, watch it. And the other thing that's interesting, at the end of the, at the credits, we have all the history of all the programs that have been done on MLK in the chapel. And I think you'll get a good sense of that sense of something you all really touched on today, the importance of uh, being both an institution and a movement. Um, you had a, there was another phrase used, I think, earlier uh, in that sense of both document and symbolism. So that sense of both being an institution and a movement. Because I think, as you said so well, none of us got here by ourselves. This myth of the self-made individual, it really does take a lot of folks working together, sharing ideas. And I think in a, a space like this today, is also helping, um, Devin, as you talked about, finding your voice through whatever medium that might be and that sense of invitation. And uh, as uh, so many of us have come out of the liberal arts and the humanities field of just seeing how that's been whittled away and how important that is to be able to say, just try it. I used to play trumpet, just try it. You missed the note, whatever, do it again, you know, over and over again. Uh, the books, we definitely will be looking at the books. We also have um, a shop. Uh, for those who don't know, we have a little chapel, gift shop, bookstore, and uh, we'll be putting Devin's book. I really hope we got to talk to your publisher, but getting that into our shop because we want to also feature works, uh, whether it's music or, or books, poetry, uh, of, of people who have graced us here at the chapel. So we thank you for that. 
uh, while he's doing that. Uh, the last thing I want to say is on your way out, or you can look on our website, we do have the rest of our programs for this year uh, online and in, a, in the print form. Uh, two that I want to really lift up will be next month, will be the annual uh, Sissy Farenthold, uh, Francis Tarleton Sissy Farenthold lecture. Uh, this uh, biennium on our side at the chapel, we've been looking at civil rights at risk in America, and this will be uh, a continued discussion about uh, particularly reproductive rights and uh, on, on understood comprehensively and how that's being uh, whittled away in so many parts of our country. Uh, we do that in partnership with the Audrey and Bernard Rappaport Center for Human Rights at uh, University of Texas Law School, so I invite you to that. And then we, in March, our biennial uh, Oscar Romero Human Rights Award, and again, we'll be honoring three uh, individuals, organizations working really at grassroots in America on trying to keep civil rights at the forefront. Um, on that last note, I think uh, you all touched on the danger of a lot of the work uh, that journalists and storytellers are about. And I think uh, as we leave today, just keeping mindful of people, how many, for example, globally, how many journalists and photographers have lost their lives over the last year. Uh, not only loss of life, but loss of reputation. And what comes with the cost of being able to articulate what you really believe in in the first person. And I think one thing we try to do here at the chapel is build that space so that oftentimes we may not even know the language or how to articulate what we really have deep in our hearts in the first person. And I thank all, all four of you for helping to unlock some of that in us today. So with that, again, big round of applause for our, our panel. Uh, what a great, great afternoon. Thank you all for being here. Have a great day, and I hope you can get to the exhibition before it's over. Take care, travel safely. <clears throat>